How do you solve a cold case? Most detectives will tell you there's no one silver bullet, no proven strategy that works every time. More often, it's an emergence, new tools that you didn't have before, fresh eyes that see things in a new light, or if you're really lucky, the appearance of unexamined evidence. From there, it's a triangulation, putting the pieces together, seeing how the portrait slowly forms out of the puzzle. The portrait of a face that, sometimes, you never would have expected. It's 1985. For years, Lieutenant Rita Schuler and the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division have been working to figure out who killed Elaine Fogel in May 1978. But Elaine's case is slowing down, is proving more frustrating than investigators had first hoped. On today's episode of Crime Capsule, we pick up right where we left off, when the case goes on ice. And yet, all is not lost. This is the story of that emergence. Those new tools, those fresh eyes, that overlooked evidence. The story of a detective who refuses to abandon her pursuit of justice. The detective who puts her hand up to God. In 1985, six years after she was killed, the investigation of Elaine Fogel's murder was at a standstill. No witnesses, few leads, a person of interest whom detectives couldn't tie to the case, and plenty of evidence, but none of it was conclusive or revealing enough at the time to identify a culprit. Was it a difficult decision to put this case on ice? I, I, I really can't speak for that myself, being that I was at SLED, but Walterboro Police Department and also the SLED regional agent that was working on this case, they're the ones that made the decision to um, say, you know, we're at a stopping point now, and this, this case is just going cold. We don't have anywhere else to go. And yes, I believe it was a tough decision for them. It was difficult, but until another piece of evidence or information arose, they just didn't have anything to work with. And I was told that it had gotten cold. What were you doing in 1985? I mean, were, had you moved on to other cases, or were you still sort of focused on Elaine at this time? Yeah, we had, we had pretty much moved on to other cases, and every day in my lab, in our um, forensic lab, we had cases come in, so of course we had to work on them. And Elaine's case was there. If anything new came in, we would certainly pull it to the forefront, but until it did... Um, working in the lab at SLED, we weren't able to um, go any further. It was just on hold until investigators gave us more information or, or evidence or suspects to work with. So one of the things that you write in your book is that in the late 1980s, two key developments in forensic technology began to emerge, behavioral science and DNA analysis. How did those change police work in your unit? Well, um, behavioral science started around 1989 at SLED. SLED set up a behavioral science unit, 
and one of our investigative agents did training at the FBI Academy for Behavioral Science. And he, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the best. I've always said that I think he could make a worm crawl out of its hole by just talking to him. David Caldwell was our psychological profiler, and Walter Burrow did ask him around 1989 to take a look at Elaine's case and try and come up with a profile of her killer. They never could get enough on Ronald Allen, and he shortly left town, which that made them even suspect him even more. But he shortly left town and went back to Tennessee where his family lived. David did get on. He looked at all the information, and he talked to the behavioral science unit in Quantico, Virginia, and asked for their assistance. And they came up with a profile on this person from all the evidence and all the reports and statements that they had in the case. What's interesting is that you write that around that same time, you have two key forensic databases emerge in, in step with these new tools, these sort of national databases. You have APHIS for fingerprints, and you have CODIS for DNA. Now, listeners who tuned in to our interview with Joshua Sushan will remember CODIS because it actually helped to finger uh, Tina Fales' killer decades after her murder. There was a hit, he was picked up, it matched, you know, and, you, and you go from there. It's, it's an incredibly powerful tool. When did APHIS and CODIS hit SLED? SLED started the DNA CODIS technology around the late 90s. It was, it was coming online then. And they had started setting up their databases at SLED around the mid-90s, early 90s to mid-90s. There was a time that if anyone was arrested, they weren't necessarily put into the CODIS database unless it was an offense and they got charged for it and arrested for it. And then later, anybody that was arrested for a crime, their DNA went into the system. But again, it was depending on the areas around South Carolina as to whether it was entered. But the law was that, yes, you can enter anyone that gets arrested for a crime. And I think now it's pretty much anybody that gets arrested for any crime, whether they are freed later on, their DNA gets into CODIS. When, when APHIS comes online, you are part of the chain of officers who are handling those lifts that are coming from a crime scene. My job was when the investigators, crime scene investigators, would bring me a fingerprint or a lift from the scene itself, I had to photograph that print and it had to be one-to-one for our APHIS operator to enter it into APHIS to go out and check the prints that were there because the prints that were there were exact size. They came from the print cards, and they were exact size, so it had to be exactly one-to-one. So that was my job. Any print they brought over, I had to photograph it and print it for them exactly one-to-one so that the APHIS operator could enter it into the automatic fingerprint system. And uh, after they did get maybe five or six hits back, it still took to look at the prints with the naked eye to make sure 
you had enough matching points there and they were in the same orientation as that fingerprint from that crime scene. It's called a candidate list. The candidate list would come back five to ten prints. The APHIS examiner would have to look at it to make sure that the markings matched up to the orientation on the original print from the crime scene and then it would go on to the fingerprint examiner and he too would look at all those matching points to see if it was that fingerprint. They had to be in the same area, in the same orientation as the original print that came from the crime scene, print that is in question. So let's get back to Elaine um, and tie, tie this into Elaine. One of the first uses of this new forensic technology in Elaine's case was to reassess whether Ronald Allen could be tied to the scene of the crime. You write, there's an investigation that took place in about 2002 where SLED went back and reviewed the evidence, tried to find what they could that could link Allen to the murder. But there was this kind of key absence there was nothing to compare it to in the database. And even after Mr. Allen had passed away and you'd obtained some blood from his autopsy, there were no matches. So can you help us understand why, why didn't this hit? The SLED and Walterboro Police Department decided they were going to look into Elaine's case again. And they were going to re-examine everything because the DNA is here now. Oh man, if we could get DNA, I know we had semen samples, and if we could get the DNA from that semen sample now, maybe we could um, match it up to who we think this is, Ronald Allen. One unfortunate thing was that there were no records still of the DNA. That DNA could not be located. And there was, um, they did, again, check every piece of evidence that Walterboro had to see if maybe they could find some semen or DNA on that evidence. And unfortunately, again, those records in reports in 2001, they could not find any DNA. So they decided that they were going to find Ronald Allen, though. If he's still alive, they're going to find Ronald Allen. And they did find that he was now in Tennessee and by the time they got there, Ronald Allen had passed away. And they're going, oh my gosh, you know, all the hopes here of maybe getting his DNA, maybe clearing him, or yeah, he's it, if we can ever find those semen samples or DNA at the scene. Luckily, another hand of God moment I say, our investigators work with the investigative agency in Tennessee, they knew Ronald Allen, and they were going to help us locate him. They did tell us that, unfortunately, he had passed away. But he passed away under um, maybe some strange conditions. They didn't know if he overdosed, and they wanted they had to check for any kind of substance in his system. And the examiner had taken two vials of blood from Ronald Allen, and luckily enough, working with him, they allowed the sled investigator to bring one of Ronald Allen's vials of blood back to sled. And when they 
did get it back to SLED. They ran a DNA analysis on his blood. So we now have a DNA heavy profile of Ronald Allen. But again, we have no DNA evidence from the crime scene to try and match it back up to. So the case went back on the shelf again, unsolved. Fast forward to just a a few years after that, to about 2007. By this point, you've been retired or semi-retired for about five or six years, but your interest in the murder hasn't waned. In some ways, it's only grown stronger. After meeting Elaine's family, you start reaching out to active duty law enforcement, collecting leads and reassessing the status of the case. What were your main steps here at this point? Well, in 2001, I retired from SLED, and not because I needed to retire or anything like that, but I I wanted to write books about cases that I worked on at SLED and, and just let everyone know how little pieces of evidence and dedication can help solve these cases and bring it up to some of the new technology we had. My third book, Small Town Slings in South Carolina, I wanted to bring in Elaine's unsolved case. I wanted to find her family members so that I could learn more about Elaine because Elaine had never really been too far from my mind. And even after I retired in 2001, I I kept saying this case can be solved. It can be solved. Now, when I did retire, I was not a certified law enforcement officer at that time. But in 2000, I started writing my books. I was able to locate Elaine's sister. And I told her that I had been involved with the Lynn's case from day one in 1978, and it's always stuck with me. I I told her about me just feeling real connected with it. And that I had been doing some, just trying to reach out to the law enforcement agencies since I'd retired to maybe see if they wanted to pick it up again, and I'd be happy to consult with them or volunteer with them to help them because I I did know a lot about the case and that's when I was informed from her that their family had been trying to do this all through the years too. But what I did was I I started connecting with uh, and trying to communicate with any of the key players that were in Elaine's case that I remembered while I was at SLED and that being the chief investigating agent from Walterboro, and also I found Elaine's roommate. I wanted to talk to her, and I wanted to talk to the friend that had come home that night and found Elaine, and I was able to do that, and they gave me a lot of information. And, of course, the investigator at Walterboro could only give me so much information because I'm not certified now, but anything that had been out to the public or or in newspapers, of course, he could give to me and share with me. And, And he did that. And his conversations with me as well, some of what he did during the investigation that I had not known about while I was slayed because we didn't know all that Walterboro was doing. And that's how I reached out to them. And then the family also said, you know, I'll give you everything I have. 
and I'll give you my information of how some of the family had tried to connect with law enforcement during the years. And uh, that's when Elaine's sister pleaded with me. She said, Rita, she said, you know, I thought Elaine had been forgotten. And if you will help me with this, let's do it. Let's see what we can get done. And that's how I ended up working with her family and talking to some of my protégés that I had known through the years. And one being the, solicitor, the deputy solicitor down in Colladon County, the 14th Circuit. And I was a personal friend of his, as well as I had assisted him with some official work while at SLED, too. And we even drank a few beers together. And, and I was talking to him about this case and at one point as well. And, and I told him, I said, Steve, you know, I think, I said, we've got all this new technology now. I said, I, I just really believe that we could do something with it, but I, I just can't get through to law enforcement because I'm not active. And he said, well, Rita, let me see what I can do. So he actually had his investigator go over to the Walterboro Police Department to see how much evidence and what they had um, for me. And he called me back. He said, Marina, my goodness, they have got a room full of evidence there. He said, whatever you have to do, get SLED back on this case. He said, because new technology is going to solve it. And he sent me some documents that was very important, such as the autopsy report. He said, you get these to SLED now, and whatever you have to do, try and get SLED back on it. And I did call SLED, but um, at that time, they didn't seem too interested in it, and they were busy, kind of just fell through the cracks again until about 2010. It sounds like you really did get the band back together in some ways, but in other ways, the band was still playing all along with all of the evidence they still had on file and the interest level as Murder has no statute of limitations. I mean, they were they were still up for this. Yes, yes. So, in, and and I was still I was still communicating with Elaine's um, family too, and, and some of the family members, and they had some pretty good information they had derived over the years, as as well as I did. And then it kind of dropped again for a while. And one day, when this wonderful Facebook started on social media. I was roaming around on Facebook one day, and all of a sudden, I popped up, and SLED has opened up a cold case unit. I went, okay, this is my chance to get this information to them now, because they said on there, um, if anybody has any information on the cold cases listed here, please contact the cold case unit at SLED. Elaine's case was the first one on that list. Well, of course, I jumped on it, and it another hand-to-God moment here. Everyone in that cold case unit I had worked with at SLED, and they were very interested in looking at what I had. So I had a meeting with them and went over and carried everything that the solicitor had given me and everything I had um, collected during the years and, and the family had collected, and, and I gave them all that information. And, of course, when I left, 
they were very interested, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't in the loop because I am unofficial at this time. I said, there's times I'm going, oh my goodness, I wonder if they're working on this. I wonder if they're working on it. But but I didn't call them. I, I said, you know, they are probably got it. They've got a cold case unit now, and I know, I knew the ones that were working on it, and they, they were really, really fine agents. Then I had an encounter in a grocery store here one day. I just got out of the house and went to the grocery store, and when I was going through the checkout line, someone behind me said, Rita Shula, and I turned around, and it happened to be one of the agents from the cold case unit, Natalie Crosland. And she said, Rita, she said, I have really gotten in, interested in Elaine's case now, too. We have gone down and got a lot of the evidence from Walterboro again, and we're having it re-examined now for DNA, and hopefully we may be able to find the semen samples, or hopefully... I think we've got something right now that we can use. And, I, you know, my head was spinning, and I'm going, oh, my God, I wonder if it's the semen samples. But she couldn't tell me if it was or if it was not, she said. But I think we've got something now that we can use. Well, here I am. I leave, and I go back home, and my wheels are spinning again. But I was real excited that they're working on it and interested in it and they're re-examining everything. And time went on a little bit again, and it was maybe a couple months, and Natalie called me at home, and she said, Rita, we have found something that may help with Elaine's case, she says, but I regret to tell you that SLED has disbanded the cold case unit so we can't work on it anymore. So I've sent all the evidence back to Walterboro. And she said, I really wish you would try and connect with someone at SLED and see if they would keep me on this case and let you uh, assist me with this in some capacity because I think we can solve this case. Well, I tried, but I didn't get any response again, and, and they shifted her on over to another um, area, vehicle crimes, and I always said in my mind, what's more important, a murder or a stolen car? But that was just my personal thought. So that was in 2010. And again, it went back on the shelf unsolved. But I couldn't get out my mind that she had said they do have something that she thinks would be useful. Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, hi True Crime, Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. 
Rita, I have often thought of this case as a roller coaster. There are highs and there are lows, there are twists and there are turns. There are moments where you're collecting evidence, you've got all sorts of expectation, you're going up, 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 and you're thinking, we're, we're going to get there, we're going to get there. And then you get these frustrations, you get these limitations, you get these snags and snafus. But if every case has its lows, every case also has its highs. Tell us about Corporal Gene Johnson. How did the two of y'all meet? Corporal Gene Johnson and I met in May, May of 2015 on the 37th anniversary of Elaine's murder. Elaine's sister called me and she told me that every year on that date, she would pick up my small town slings book and read about Elaine's unsolved case. And she says, this year I picked it up and I read it. And she now has an adopted daughter that lives with her, Melissa. And she said, I, I looked at Melissa and I said, I can hear Elaine telling me, don't stop, keep going, keep going. She says, I'm going to call Rita again. So she calls me and she said, Rita, we are thinking about trying to get in touch with Walterboro Police Department again to see if there's any advancements in Elaine's case. And I said, I think that is a wonderful idea. I said, but you're going to have to do it because they kind of told me in their own way, you know, we got this and um, we'll, we'll handle it. She hung up and in a matter of just a few minutes, her adopted daughter called me back, Melissa, and she said, Miss Rita, you better sit down. And I went, what? She says, I called down there. There is a new investigator that they've got looking at Elaine's case right now, Corporal Gene Johnson. And we told him that we wanted him to communicate with you because you've been helping us through the years. He said, well, this is really something because my wife came home a while back once I got on this case. My wife came home and gave me Miss Rita's book, Small Town Slings, that had Elaine's case written in that book. And he said, I was real excited about reading the story she had written and even more exciting to see that she had been on this case since day one. I, yes, I'm calling her to ask if she can assist me with this. I, I was just, as I said, over the moon. I said, oh my goodness, Carl Johnson. I said, I have been wanting to do this ever since I started on this case in 78. Yes, I will assist. But I'm not active now, so you're going to have to get permission from your police chief for me to be able to touch and look at the evidence and go through all the case files and everything. And he said, I've already gotten permission. And that's how I met Corporal Johnson. And within, um, I think it was like two days, we talked on the phone. And in two days, I went over to meet him. And I could tell from day one, he was like a big, muscular teddy bear that had a heart of gold. You know, he just made you feel good when he talked to you, and you could see the passion in him. He said, I've talked to her family, and uh, he says, I, I want us to solve this case. He said, I've prayed to God to help us solve this case because they have been waiting long enough. 
we started going back to the beginning and reading over everything, everything, everything. Corporal Johnson was only 13 years old when Elaine was murdered, and he had joined the force around 1992. The two of y'all had very different careers in law enforcement. And I'm curious, Rita, how did your strengths complement one another? What was the dynamic like between y'all as you got started working together? We were determined. We had the passion for Elaine. He had learned about Elaine from reading the story and talking to her family and then after talking to me too. And he was determined. He said, we can solve this case. I've looked over a lot of the evidence already. This case can be solved. And, and it was just like instant power that we had with each other. We could almost finish each other's sentences sometime. And we shared what we thought, the theories of of how it could have happened or why it hasn't been solved. And, you know, some of them were even, and I don't mean this bad, but some of them was almost crazy to a point where we had to laugh. But we checked out everything, everything. We just we just had that connection, and, and we trusted each other. That was a big thing, too. We trusted each other. You know, you, you have this amazing photo. It's a photo by Vicki Hall with Corporal Johnson on the left, and you're on the right, and both of you look like, I don't know if I can say this, but both of y'all look like total badasses. He's six <laughs> feet of solid muscle, you know, biceps like tree trunks. He's packing serious heat, you know, and, and there you are. You're rocking these killer shades, <laughs> this leather jacket fit to make Arnold Schwarzenegger jealous. I mean, I, I look at this photo and I think this is CSI Walterboro. That is correct. That was CSI Walterboro and a little bit of sled retirement mixed in. And, and um, <laughs> I mean, we wanted to get this guy. We wanted to get the person that did this with Elaine, even if he wasn't alive anymore. We wanted to do this. And we were certainly the odd couple. We were certainly the odd couple to look at us. But inside, we were both this, we want to get this badass. So you're back in action. And uh, you, Rita, are now fully authorized to review all the evidence, sealed or no. How did the two of y'all get started? Uh, How did you make sense out of the morass of material after so long? Well, we had to honestly, and you'll hear me say this so many times, go back to the beginning. There were binders, there were boxes and there were reports, and, and it was a lot of repetition because every time they would try to reopen this, they would get the same reports back from SLED. They would get the same reports from Walterboro. So we had to go through, and we actually had to set up a very more simple outline of what happened back in 78 from the beginning, and the incident reports we had from them, any statements they had from any persons of interest or any statements they had written, and also recordings. And, and Corporal Johnson had listened to all of them. I did not listen to any recordings because he'd listened to all of them, and he had, he had pretty much talked to the ones that were still around with those recordings, and he had his own records on them. But we had to put it in order because it wasn't in any particular order there in the file 
room because of so many times when they, when they opened it up to look at it again, it was just repetition. So we simplified it down to what really happened from 1978 up through the times that went back to SLED and all the information about trying to find out from the examiners at SLED what the reports were in 78, what the reports were in 2001 when it was opened back up, what evidence they had, what evidence they looked at. And, and we got it down to a pretty good um, binder there where we had, we had the timeline pretty much set out. And while we were looking through these files, I came across one file, and in that file I saw a SLED report from 2010 that reflected um, there was some mixed DNA found on some panties in the living room where Elaine was found murdered, where her body was found. And I looked at it and I went, Gene, I said, what, what is this? And he said, Rita, that's a report from SLED that when they got this evidence back in the cold case unit back in 2010, this was re-examined and there was some mixed DNA found on it. But of course, I went, oh, Jesus, this is what Natalie was trying to tell me in that grocery store. And, and it was Natalie's report from the DNA analysis of the DNA that was found on a pair of panties. But it wasn't semen. It was blood. So it was blood that was a DNA mixed male and female profile. And it was Elaine's blood and the bad guy's blood, which caused a mixed DNA. It was not the semen. And I looked at him and I went, oh, geez, at least we've got a little bit of DNA here now to work with. Now we got to find a name to try and match it to. He went out and got DNA from a lot of the people that he had talked to in Walterboro. I think he knew everybody there because he was born and raised there. And the ones that were mentioned in the case file, he went out and, and, and they were pretty okay about giving him DNA, like the bar friends and some friends. None of that matched back up to this DNA profile. So then we kind of get to a point after all of that, you know, oh gosh, where do we go now? We've got this DNA profile. We do not have a name. We go back to the beginning. I want to read you a passage from your book. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 17, you write, and I quote, for three months, Corporal Johnson and I had been through Elaine's files over and over, communicating every day and sometimes into the night. We cleared every potential suspect, discredited every rumor, and cleared every suspect documented in the case file, including Ronald Allen, the suspect from day one, unquote. You guys had been through a bunch of dead ends. Elaine's former fiance, he didn't pan out. You write that the, the tapes, the dispatcher tapes of the days surrounding the murder, there was nothing there. What were you feeling at this moment? Frustration, worry, fear that there might not be anything new after all? We were feeling all of the above, yes. We were feeling frustration. But we'd always pull ourselves out of that frustrating. We were frustrated quite a few times. 
fear. I don't know that we had a lot of fear because we just knew we had some DNA there, and we, Gene and I both just knew in our mind that we we're going to solve this thing. Gene realized, too, that they had been so focused on Ronald Allen. He said, I am not going to let this happen again. He said, this is probably somebody they didn't even look at back then. One thing they did do when they found this mixed DNA profile, they already had Ronald Allen's profile at SLED from a few years back. So they checked it against this mixed male DNA in this profile, and it did not belong to Ronald Allen. So that finally cleared Ronald Allen. That did not put him in that house, and his, I mean, no other blood was found in that house except Elaine's and this unknown blood. It's August 2015, and you guys have been at this for months. You've been looking at every single scrap right from the beginning, and no stone is left unturned. In August 2015, you have what you call a light bulb moment. What was that? Well, after we had looked into everything and we had pretty much eliminated everybody and all the persons of interest, and we just got to a stopping point of, God, where do you go from here? And again, that's when my philosophy, go back to the beginning. So one morning I was walking around in my living room here at home, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going back to the beginning now. This case came across my desk in May of 1978, and I photographed all the crime scene photos, I processed them, I photographed all the fingerprints, all the lists, and I went, oh my God, a light bulb came on in my head. And I said, we have been so focused on DNA, wanting to find DNA in this case, we have not even thought about the fingerprints that's in this case. That is another great piece of evidence over there that of fingerprints, and we've never even looked at them. So I picked up the phone, and I called my good buddy at SLED, Tom Darnell. He uh, was fingerprint examiner, and I worked with him many years. And I, I told him about the case. He said, Rita, my gosh, he said, I remember you talking about Elaine's case for so many years. He said, what can I do for you? And I said, I have photographs of fingerprints and palm prints from that crime scene in my old manila envelope over in my old photo last on. And I know that those files are still there because that's one thing I told Sled when I left. I said, you know, don't get rid of all these negatives. Don't get rid of these photography files if you have enough room for them. Don't put them on digital. Keep them in solid form. And they did that. Tom told me, he said, yeah. He said, I, I go back over there quite a bit in some of my investigations. He said, give me a minute. And he, I could tell he was excited because Tom loves to get the bad guy off the street. So it wasn't within the hour. Tom called me back, and he says, Rita, he said, we just got a hit on a palm print from your case file that was a lift from the crime scene, and it came back to a black male, 58 years old, Willie Butterfield. And I went, what? And he said, do you even know that name? And I said, no, I bet Corporal Johnson does, though. So I said, give him a call real quick. 
Well, I calmed down a little bit, and Corporal Johnson texted me. He said, Rita, he said, I'll call you in a few minutes. When he called me, he said, you know what? This is this is amazing. He said, I actually arrested Willie Butterfield in 2010 when I was with the Sheriff's Department in Walterboro in Colleton County. And he said, I know Willie Butterfield and his family still lives here and I'm going to see if he's still alive and I'm going out to find him. And within t another two or three hours, um, Tom Darnell calls us back and says that they had made two fingerprints on Willie Butterfield as well. They were found in the house, one on a, a end table, and those two fingerprints on the glass, entrance glass from um, where he had broken in to the house that night. But now that puts Willie Butterfield in Elaine's house, but it does not put Willie Butterfield sexually assaulting and killing her. But we have the mixed DNA. Corporal Johnson, he called and found that Willie Butterfield now is in a mental institution in Columbia, South Carolina. And he's been in there since 2012, I believe it is. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the emergence of a new suspect here matches up with the piece of evidence that the original investigators had overlooked years earlier, doesn't it? It's the statement by none other than Ronald Allen's wife, Fran, of someone she saw that morning outside her house. That is correct. The evidence shows that it was a black male and Ronald Allen's wife had seen a black male out at the water spigot the morning of the early morning that Elaine was killed, washing up at that spigot that she had told investigators about, but they never acted on, the, on that and did not follow up that particular lead that she had given them. Why was that overlooked? Can't answer that. I think it was because they were so focused in on Ronald Allen being the person that killed Elaine, and he was close to her, lived close to her, and, and it was just convenient. They just zoomed in on him, and they couldn't get it out of their mind that it was Ronald Allen. And up until Willie Butterfield was arrested, quite a few of the investigators still thought it was Ronald Allen, even though the DNA did not match up to Ronald Allen. You guys go looking for Willie Butterfield, and you don't have to look far. He is in an institution for a fairly grisly series of crimes committed back in 2010. What had landed him in jail at that time? Willie Butterfield had been arrested for assisting a female with disposing of human remains of a person that was killed in a motel. But apparently they got both got out on bond because they were back out on the street. And at that time... Um, it was awaiting to go to court. One good thing that came out of that was when Willie Butterfield was arrested in 2012, his DNA got 
into the CODIS system, and his fingerprints and palm prints as well got into the APHIS system. His DNA was not in the system when they put it in the system back in 2010. But in 2012, his DNA was entered into CODIS because of this arrest, and his fingerprints and palm prints were entered into APHIS because of this arrest. And that's how that palm print got a hit to the palm print from the crime scene. So even though you have a palm print and a fingerprint putting him at the scene, and you've got the hit, the DNA hit from CODIS, your work is not yet done. What remained to be established before you could charge him with the crime? We knew if we could get Willie Butterfield's DNA and match it back to that mixed DNA on her panties in that blood, that would be Willie Butterfield's blood. That would determine it was Willie Butterfield's blood. That would place him at some point, his blood touching Elaine's blood. That would be the end of the puzzle there. His blood mixed in with Elaine's blood tells you that at some point he touched Elaine's blood. Were you all able to interview Willie Butterfield? Um, Corporal Johnson was. He and um, one of his investigators went up to the mental institution in Columbia, South Carolina, to interview Willie Butterfield. And he did talk to Willie Butterfield. And I think one of the first questions he asked him was, do you remember me? Willie looked at him and said, yes, I do remember you. And that took him back to that 2010 when uh, Corporal Johnson had arrested him when he was at the Sheriff's Department. And they gave him his rights. They read him his rights and said, we'd like for you to sign here. He said, I'm sorry, I, I can't read or write. And he said, okay, I'll read them to you. And if you can, just um, put your X on the line here, and, and the investigator here will be your witness. Well, after he read him his rights, he actually signed his name very legibly. So that was number one lie there, too. And, of course, Gene asked him if, if um, he'd ever been in Elaine's house, and did he know Elaine? No, I don't know her. And... He finally got around to the ending part of, well, we know you've been in her house. We know we can put you in her house. Why did you kill her? And he said, I want a lawyer. So it had to stop. Okay, but during, during the interview, um, Corporal Johnson did get a buckle swab from Willie Butterfield. And when he left Willie Butterfield that day, he immediately went over to SLED and gave it to the analyst there to do the profile and do a match to the mixed DNA profile that they already had on the file. Day or so, she called him and told him it was a match. He called me and told me, he said, it's a match, Rita. We got Willie Butterfield and it's him. We know it's him now. We got his fingerprints. We got the match to that blood. And it's him. It's his profile. So we, we're, we can pretty much arrest him. But I have to talk to the solicitor. Well, of course, when he talked to the solicitor, the solicitor said, 
okay, you, we know it, this man did this now. With all this, we know he did it, but we can't use that sample that you got from him while he was in that mental institution because he was dimmed incompetent. And he said, is there any other profiles or anywhere that you have any DNA from him that possibly could be used? And then Gene said, 2012, he, that's when his DNA got into the system. And in 2012, Willie Butterfield hadn't gone to court where he was dimmed incompetent yet. He was still out on that bond. So that freed that up to where they could use that DNA profile and look at the profile in the blood spot on the panties from the crime scene. And the, anal the analyst at SLED, she had to take a few um, weeks there because we had a flood in between, but she did get a match. It was a match to the spot mixed DNA on the panties um, from the crime scene. And that's when we knew we really had him. I mean, all those checks that we went through, that's when the solicitor said, okay, you can arrest him now and you can tell the family. It took 37 years, but you were finally able to deliver some news to Elaine's family. After 37 years, we were finally able to deliver the news to Elaine's family and loved ones that we have arrested and we found the person that killed their beloved Elaine. We were to meet over at Walterboro Police Department that morning and they were to meet with us, the family members. And on the way to Walterboro, I stopped and I picked up two red roses. And when we got in the meeting room, Elaine's sister was there and um, her sister's adopted daughter, Corporal Johnson, police chief, and, and there was an administrator there, I think, too. And Corporal Johnson told Elaine's family, he looked at them, and they didn't know what to expect because they'd heard bad news over the past and they'd been disappointed over the past. And he said, I just want to tell you, we arrested the person that killed and assaulted Elaine. And his name is James Willie Butterfield. And of course, everybody broke down and tears came to everybody, even the police chief and, and Carl Johnson too, this big muscular man that, that did this wonderful thing and, and myself. I walked over to Elaine's sister, and I handed her one of those red roses. And I said, Eolian, this is for you. And Elaine, and I said, we finally got him. We finally got the person that killed Elaine. And then I handed her the other red rose, and I said, Elaine, this is for you. We finally got him. We got him. You can rest in peace now, sweet girl. You can rest in peace. You know, this case really is such a roller coaster with the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows and the highs. Well, it sounds like Elaine taught you to never lose hope. Absolutely. And that's one thing I'll tell anyone that's going through the same thing of losing a loved one like this. 
Don't ever give up hope. Don't ever give up trying to communicate with law enforcement, even if they hurt your feelings and even if they say we can't do anything else. Keep bugging them. And there's quite a few departments now, I'm sure, and agencies that have cold case units. And they are separate from work in today's case because today's case is going to be the priority. But the cold case units, they concentrate on the cold cases. They don't have to spend time on the cases that they're working today. And you just have to make a breakthrough with investigators to get you, get their attention. You'll get your feelings hurt sometime, maybe not, but keep pushing. Keep pushing. That's, that's what we did. And maybe a Corporal Gene Johnson will come along, you know, with one of them too and stay on it. He was determined as I was, and he was only on it for about five months, but he was determined as I was after 37 years. So it's that determination and passion, but you have to have an investigator to work on it and stay on it to really, really take it on through to the end or as far as you can get. Well, thank you. Thank you for those encouraging words, and thank you for just making the time for us. We, um, it has been a real privilege to learn about this case directly from you and to travel back through time and to see something that doesn't happen often enough, which is justice is served. And so we thank you for taking us there. Thank you, Rita. And thank you all for remembering Elaine and keeping memories Elaine's memory alive for her family and her loved ones, and especially for myself and Corporal Johnson. We'll never forget Elaine. Thanks for listening. Our guest for this series has been Rita Schuler, author of The Lowcountry Murder of Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel, A Cold Case Solved, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We're just getting started here at Crime Capsule, and we're excited to bring you the best of true crime authorship in the weeks to come. To find out more, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, And this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.